if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Deuteronomy. Um, I have, if you, when you came in, you should have gotten a little packet there on the stand. If you have your, your packet, on the, in the back of the packet, there is a verse, a group of, of Bible verses. Those are the vast majority of the verses that we'll be looking at this evening. And so um, you have those, uh, you should have ready access to those as we go through um, the book of Deuteronomy. As we've been going through the Old Testament and looking at uh, the various things that have happened in the Old Testament, the highlights of the Old Testament, and our goal here is there's several things that we're trying to accomplish, just, for, just to keep in mind. Uh, and for anybody that hasn't been joining us, just to kind of keep in mind, what we're trying to accomplish is really grabbing a hold of the Old Testament and looking at the overarching story that's taking place in the Old Testament. And doing so, what I hope that does is help us to connect to the New Testament in a new way. Help us to understand the, what's happening in the New Testament as truly a fulfillment of the things of the storylines and the things that are opening up in the Old Testament. And so the other part of that is to remove some of the fear that comes along with going into the Old Testament. Because I think when we do, especially you get to the book of, let's say, Leviticus, like we looked at a couple of weeks ago, or you look at the book of Numbers, where there's not a whole lot of these, you know, kind of eye-popping stories and things like that 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 keep your attention, a lot of times we open to the book of Leviticus and we go, it's a bunch of laws that have no um, uh, application to me today. And so you just keep going and or you fall asleep while you're reading it. And so the hope is that we can remove some of that uh, from the Old Testament and actually learn what these books are trying to accomplish and how they're moving the story, especially the story that anticipates Christ coming, how they're moving that story forward. And so each one of these books has a purpose. So as we look at kind of a review of the four books that we've looked at so far in the Old Testament, and we won't look at every book of the Old Testament, we'll look at quite a few of them. Um, the first book that we saw was Genesis, and we look at this, this story that's the storyline that's opening up even as early as Genesis chapter 3, where the man and woman are in the garden and they uh, fall prey to the serpent's um, beguiling, uh, deceit. And they take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and God is doling out the judgment there to the man, the woman, and the serpent. And what he promises to the serpent is that one is coming who is going to crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And what we see in the book of Genesis, the whole, basically the whole story of the book of Genesis is the anticipation of this seed that is promised in Genesis 3, 15, and how God is going to even bring this seed into the world. And so we see in Genesis chapter 12, the, the family that he has selected in Abraham to bring forth this seed. And as he goes down the line from Abraham to Isaac to then uh, Jacob to and on and on where some brothers in the line are, are just eliminated from contention of bringing forward this seed and some are chosen to bring forward this seed. And so we watch this line weave its way through the book of Genesis. In fact, through the entire Old Testament into the book of Matthew, where we see this line actually culminate in Jesus. But we're watching this line develop throughout the entire Old Testament. But Genesis is specifically focused on that. How is God going to bring about this group of people? And so he does it through this family. And he tells Abraham, he promises to Abraham, hey, your family's going to come back into this land. I'm going to give them this land. And I'm going to make them a great nation. But they're going to be in slavery for 400 years. And what do we find in Exodus? But that the people have been in Egypt for 400 years. They've been enslaved for a, a large portion of that time there. And uh, God has told Abraham, hey, when they come out of Egypt, when I bring them out of Egypt or out of the land of slavery, they're going to come out with lots of possessions. And Exodus is all about the children of Israel coming, half of it anyway, is about them coming out of Egypt, out from under the yoke of slavery. And they're given tons of possessions by the, the 
Egyptian people who are ready to see them go by the 10th plague are demanding, in fact, that they leave. We'll give you whatever you want to just get out of here. And so the first half of the book is God rescuing his people out of slavery. But then the second half of the book is the other massive component. How does God dwell once again with his people? That's what we're seeing happen from the thread that's opened up in Genesis chapter 3 is God no longer dwells with his people because of sin. So how is God going to dwell with his people? Well, in Exodus, we find out he's building a tabernacle and he's going to dwell with them. He's going to come down and live with them. But what we find out is that it's not so easy for God to dwell with his people. God, I suppose, can do whatever he wants. It's more the people dwelling with God that's the problem. He, they build the tabernacle. God descends into the tabernacle. And Moses, at the end of the book of Exodus, cannot walk in to the presence of God. And so we get the book of Leviticus that basically details for us how the people of Israel are actually going to live in relation with God, how they're going to go into his presence, how they're going to make sacrifices, how they're going to live as a people so that they can know what is clean and what is unclean and actually live in the presence of a holy God. So Leviticus shows us, if nothing else, the holiness of God in a very clear sort of way, in a very tactile sort of way. And so the people, as they're coming to understand what the holiness of God really is, um, they have these laws that allow them access to God's presence. But then things turn really sour in the book of Numbers, where the holiness of God takes on almost a whole new meaning for the people. They realize very quickly that God's holiness not only means that they have to do certain things, but they have to be a certain kind of people. And they're not that at all. Uh, these people go into the wilderness. They leave Sinai. That's the whole goal, right? Is building a portable tabernacle for God to go with them in their midst. And so they have the tabernacle. God's presence leads them and guides them along the way. And the tabernacle, wherever they stop and make camp, the tabernacle is set up and they encamp around it. And as they leave Sinai, uh, all things start to turn bad. They start to grumble against Moses. They start to distrust. Moses gets really frustrated, incidentally. He gets really mad at the people. He's had enough. And who wouldn't with the kind of grumbling and complaining that they do against him? So finally, he's had enough. He, uh, it leads him to a, 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 let's just say, Moses is in a bad place, all right? <laughs> There's no other way to say it. Moses is in a bad place. And so God tells him, look, the people are thirsty. They're grumbling and complaining, and he's had enough. And God says, look, uh, speak to the rock, and water will come out. And Moses takes his staff instead and says bad things to the people and then turns to the rock and strikes it twice. And for that, God says, no, you're not going to enter the promised land because you haven't kept my name as holy in front of the people. And so what we're going to find out tonight is Moses didn't actually like that and really uh, petitioned the Lord that he would change his mind about that decision. And uh, so pretty interesting. But the book of Numbers basically shows the Hebrew people as they're led through the wilderness. And as they're led through the wilderness, they're complaining and they're grumbling. Their lack of faith gets to the point, uh, get, gets so much that, that the Lord says, look, the generation that's in the wilderness right now, I'm going to make them walk around for about 40 years until every one of them dies. And I'll lead the ones into the promised land that are their children. We're going to start over. And so the children of Israel are set to wander around the desert for, uh, for 40 years. And so we see that God is not only dedicated to, the holiness, to his own holiness and the preservation of his name, but he's also dedicated to a very recurring theme throughout the book of Deuteronomy, especially, which is purging the evil person from among you. Um, the ones who are bent on doing evil get rid of them. They will take everybody else down. So um, we see that in the book of Numbers and then in Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy, the people have walked around for 40 years. The generation has died off. They're getting to the point where they're ready to walk into the promised land. And so the book of Deuteronomy is Moses giving them one last, basically, series of speeches that prepare them as they're going to enter into the promised land. And so Deuteronomy is kind of his last will and testament. He's not going to make it. And he knows that, but he is going to prepare them one last time. 
If you'll look at Deuteronomy chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles open there, this one I didn't include in the verse packet, but you can see there, uh, if you have your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 3. Moses was none too happy about the fact that he's not going in. But he does understand it, and he explains it to the people. We don't see this in Numbers, this account of what happened between the Lord and Moses after the Lord said, you're not going in. We don't see this in Numbers. Moses tells us about it later in the book of Deuteronomy. He says it in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 23. He says, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such mighty works, uh, uh, such mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you. Don't forget whose problem it was. It was yours because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me on this matter again. So Moses is complaining, look, I really want to go in. Please, will you let me go in? The Lord said, don't don't even bring this up again. I'm tired of talking to you about this. So just keep quiet and we're going to carry on. We're going to move on, all right? You're you're a big boy. You can get over it, okay? So uh, he basically tells Moses that he's had it and he's gone. So Deuteronomy becomes a really important book because we know that Moses is going to die. And the the Israelites have kind of what Moses is the best leader they've ever had. Moses is a prophet like none other had been before him, obviously. He is really the first prophet of Israel. He's the one that led them out of the bondage of slavery. Moses is a big deal. Even up until John the Baptist, Moses is a big deal. Um, And so Deuteronomy is really important because this big deal is about to die. And the children of Israel are going to be what they feel like is on their own for the first time. And so what's going to happen to them? Well, it turns out Moses is not too optimistic about what's going to happen to them. We'll cover that in just a minute. But the structure of the book of Deuteronomy is incredibly important. If you don't see the structure of the book, then it's going to be really hard to grasp its meaning and grasp the significance of it when it comes to the New Testament. You have to understand how the book is built in order to understand why it's really important. And in fact, I think that's true of almost every book in the Bible. As you begin to study a book of the Bible, it's really good to get help, and especially help that points out the structure of the book, how it's built. Because when you look at how it's built, it can make some of the more complicating passages or complicated passages make sense. So if you look at, say, like the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel is, is really built in halves, where you have the kingdom of Saul and you have the kingdom of David. And there'll even be points in the book where you see in the same chapter nearly uh, the kingdom of Saul and a description of Saul, and then you look at the description of David. But you can see when you look at the structure of the book that what the author is doing is showing you the contrast between the kingdom of Saul and the righteousness of David as he's coming in. So things when you look at structure like that again it's not the most it's not the most attractive portion of bible study i get that but if you if you can wrap your mind around that it really helps and i think that's true of deuteronomy the book's title the uh, deuteronomy comes from a greek word actually a greek compound word um, the first word deutero meaning second and namas meaning law so it's basically a second law it's a retelling if you will of the law So the law that we got in Leviticus is going to be reiterated and told to us again. You can imagine why that's happening. Moses is giving them one last parting shot. And they've been walking around the desert for 40 years. So they got the law back when they left Sinai. They've carried it on in their culture for the last 40 years. Now they're about to leave and Moses is about to die. What's he going to do? just going to remind you one more time. So it's a second law, right? So what we see here is particularly in chapters 12 to 26 of Deuteronomy, it's basically a recapitulation or a recapping of the law that God has given to the people through Moses. Now, as I said, you've got to remember the Hebrews have been walking through the desert for 40 years an entire generation has been killed. Why has that generation been killed? 
You remember? Why? Why did he kill him? Faithless. What, what did he tell them to do? He told them to take the land. They hadn't been in the, in the wandering from Sinai not, not a few weeks. And he tells them, all right, go in and take the land. And they send spies in there, and a bunch of spies come back and go, no, we can't. We, there's no way we can do that. Of course. I, I saw him split the sea. Get it. I saw him drown Pharaoh's army. Understand. I saw him descend on Sinai. In fact, there's a cloud and a pillar of fire that's there that we're afraid to listen to, and we have to have Moses listen to on our behalf because we're afraid it'll kill us if we listen too closely. But I don't think we can beat these people <laughs> as we go into the land. <laughs> Surely God has met his match when it comes to these tall people. Have you seen how tall they are? My goodness. So God says, look, you're not listening to me. So I'm going to just kill you off. Okay, so I'm just going to let you wander around uh, the desert for 40 years. So they've wandered around the desert for 40 years. An entire generation has died off. And so Moses is going to remind them of what it actually takes to stay in the land. And in order to stay in the land, they must maintain covenant faithfulness to the Lord. You have to obey the things that he has told you you have to obey. And if you don't, he's going to kick you out of the land. Period. So he's just reiterating the law one more time. But let's talk about the way, this, the, way the book is built. Okay. Just here's a warning. Okay. This could get really nerdy really fast. All right. <laughs> and I realize there could be a tendency to check out right at this moment when I bring up the next word. Okay. But just hang in with me, okay? You really need to understand this. The book of Deuteronomy is built like an ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaty. All right. Now, I have a friend who got his degree, his master's in history, in medieval history. And his specialty was suzerain vassal treaties from the medieval ages, from the Middle Ages. And every time he would talk about suzerain vassal treaties... I would make a snoring sound like I was falling asleep just to really get on his nerves. <laughs> I realize that these can be really boring when we start talking about suzerain vassal treaties. And I realize at first you probably don't know what suzerain vassal treaties are. And that's okay because I'm going to explain them. Um, <clears throat> a suzerain vassal treaties, in these kinds of treaties, um, the big power, the great power, which is called the suzerain king, all right, the great power basically imposed on a group of people, typically the ones that he has conquered, they would be called the vassal. All right, so the suzerain would be the king. The vassal is the inferior party, the one that has been conquered. The suzerain would enforce on the vassal a kind of treaty where he would say, this is how Life is going to be for you from here on out. You're going to live this way. If you don't abide by the grounds of this covenant, then I will kill you. Pretty simple, right? You're a small country. You go to war with a bigger country. They run over you like a Mack truck over a Coke can. And they have every right to take you into captivity and now say to you, these are the terms. This is how you have to live. You're our slaves from here on out. Right? That makes sense? Makes good sense, right? I want to show you just uh, uh, the structure of Deuteronomy and uh, uh, ancient Near Eastern treaty, and you'll see uh, the parallels here. So if you look at the treaty is on the left, this would be an ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaty. This would be how they would be constructed. So the treaty would be drawn up, would be read aloud to the people, and would, be, would basically say, st stand in the halls forever. This is how you're to live in relation to us. You would have at the beginning of the treaty a preamble. This is, this is why we're doing this. This is who I am. This is why I have the right to make this treaty. Then you would have a historical prologue. Let me just remind you of all the things that I've done in the past. All right? Just so you, you know that you don't want to mess with me, here's all the things that I've done in the past. So you've got this historical prologue. Then you have some general stipulations. Okay, here's how we're going to live together, all right? We're going to live by these basic, uh, basic creeds, all right? This is what you're going to do. This is what you're not going to do. Then you would have some specific stipulations. Don't drive faster than the speed limit. 
all right? The speed limit is 60 miles an hour. You're not to exceed 60 miles an hour. In fact, we're going to make it sure that cars don't even go beyond 60 miles an hour because you're not to exceed it. All right, so specific stipulations. Then you have divine witnesses. And the gods so-and-so and so-and-so and such-and-such and such-and-such are here as witnesses that if you do this, they're going to crush you too, that if you're, and that I am their, I'm their child, all right, basically is the way it goes. And then you have blessings and curses. If anybody uh, does not abide by this treaty, you're going to suffer the, the death of, of, of a cursed person, and you're going to die in the worst possible way, all right? That would be a suzerain vassal treaty that we, f- we found hundreds of these historically, okay? Um, the book of Deuteronomy, look how it's built. A preamble, chapters 1, one to, uh, verses 1 to 5. The historical prologue, this is what God has done for us, what, what he has done, this is what you've done to deserve this kind of treaty over the past 40 years. Some general stipulations, we're going to look at what each of those pe- these pieces are, but some general stipulations in Deuteronomy chapter five, uh, chapter 5 through chapter 11. Some specific stipulations is where we get the second law again, where we get a, a recapping of the law that he's already given to us in Leviticus chapters 12 to 26. Some blessings and curses. Now this is just reversed, okay? But some blessings and curses. If you don't abide by these things, then this is what's going to happen to you. And then you have some witnesses that come along at the very end. God is the witness uh, uh, about this, this testimony okay, of the structure. So we know that the book of Deuteronomy is built like a suzerain vassal treaty. But that's really important for figuring out why that matters for us as a New Testament audience. We have to know that, and we have to keep that in mind. Clear? Does that make sense? Which came first? Which came first? Chicken or the egg? The, tr- the suzerain vassal treaty. The, the book of Deuteronomy is written like a suzerain vassal treaty because that's what makes sense to the people because that's the culture they grew up in. They know that from, I mean, they grew up in, well, their most recent history is, is Egypt, but they're an ancient Near Eastern culture. These are all over the place from Egypt all the way up to the land of Canaan and all the way through Mesopotamia. So, and, and we found these as early as 2000 BC and, and a little bit earlier. So they've been around for a long time. That's how you wrote it, you know. Um, Imagine a country uh, spawning from the United States of America starting their constitution with we the people. Be very similar. Call back the same kind of things to mind, right? Yeah. Other questions? All right. Let's get trucking. Okay. Um, (laughs) um, All right. The, the revelation of this structure, I think, actually makes a really important point about the difference between the suzerains and, of the ancient Near East and the God of the Bible. There is going to be a tremendous difference, and we're going to look at some of those differences through the structure of the book, but we're going to find that the God of the Bible uh, uh, is bringing this into their language, but he's also altering his approach just a little bit, enough that it makes the gospel make a whole lot of sense, Okay. Um, so first, we get to part one, where we have the preamble, the prologue, and sort of the general stipulations, which is there in chapters uh, 1, 1 to 11. And we see that uh, preamble of the treaty there in Deuteronomy 1, 1 to 5. Look at it. Somebody read that out loud for us. Deuteronomy 1, 1 to 5. Okay, now pause right there. That's the end of the preamble. Now, 
Here's what you should notice about the, the, the preamble. And do I already have it on the screen? Okay. Um, normally, the king is going to issue this decree to the vassals that would be under his now command. The problem is, in the preamble to Deuteronomy, who's speaking? Who's speaking there in the preamble? Who's about to? Yeah, Moses. It introduces Moses. Moses is not the king. In fact, Moses is about to die. Who is the king? God is the king. Okay, so God is the king, but in this second law or this treaty, Moses is the one speaking on behalf of God to the people. So the true king of Israel, who is God, is not speaking, but it establishes Moses as the spokesman or the prophet of God, the one who would have God's words in his mouth. Now, why is it that this was the case? Why is it that Moses is standing there giving this treaty instead of God himself as the true king of Israel? Well, as it turns out, because God is a pretty big deal. Um, the people were afraid of God. They could not listen to God, and they were scared of hearing His voice. And when, he, when they heard His voice, they shook with terror. And we can look, if you look in your passage list there, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 22 to 31, it says, These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly. Remember, this is Moses reminding them of, of all that has happened in the past. He says, These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to, all, to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when he spoke to me. When you, when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that, that they may do them in the land I am giving them to possess." So the people are terrified about hearing the voice of the Lord. They, under, they grasp his holiness immediately, and they know we're going to die if he keeps talking to us. So I got an idea. Moses, why don't you go do it? <laughs> why don't you go listen to him and then come back and just, why don't you just tell us what he said? We, we'll trust you and we'll, we'll do it. Okay. So the people are afraid. So why isn't God speaking as the king of all of Israel in the preamble to this treaty? Well, the reason is because he's so holy that if he spoke to them, that he would kill them, or at least he would scare them half to death, all right? So even the very beginning of the treaty is just different enough to know that all the kings who stand and give their decrees in front of these people, they're not all powerful. The one king who cannot stand in front of the people and give the decree lest they die, he's the one that's all powerful. Okay, so that's the first huge difference. So... um. Yeah, Moses is, throughout the, the first few chapters then, Moses is going to remind them of the past unfaithfulness of their predecessors. Remember, a new generation is coming in, and so he's got to remind them, remember, you buried a whole lot of people, and all of them died because they disobeyed the Lord. So he's reminding them of their past unfaithfulness, and then he communicates to them the need for present uh, commitment to the law in order that their future would be secure. So the whole book of the beginning, or at least the beginning of Deuteronomy is built to remind them, let's take account of the past so that our present is changed, so that our future is secure. All right, so all of those things are put into place. 
Um, now, we get into a portion of the... Um, I, I think I've gone too far here. No, I, no, I haven't. I'm good. Um, we get into the portion of uh, Deuteronomy 5 to 11, where Moses is now going to lay out some just general stipulations of the covenant. And as it turns out, the underlying foundational premise of the covenant is love. That's the underlying foundation on which the whole covenant is built, is love. First, there is God's love for his people. And the reason we know that that's evident is uh, his, his love for them is evident is because he started the covenant with them in the first place. He led them out of the yoke of slavery, out of bondage, and uh, into the land. Look at, um, just as a couple of examples here, Deuteronomy 5, 6. Uh, I am the Lord, who, uh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Deuteronomy 7, 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Deuteronomy 8, 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord God disciplines you. So it's not just his love for them, but it's like a father's love for his child that he's keeping them. So the underlying foundation is love, and we see that first in God loving them and actually saving them and beginning initiating a covenant with them. But then it's also what's required of them, come on, there we go, is man's love for God that must be there as the foundation of the covenant. We know this even from as early as Deuteronomy 6, 5. You know this one, don't you? Um, you'd probably know it starting with verse 4. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Um, I keep wanting to go to the New Testament after that. Then you love your neighbors yourself. That's not in there. Uh, but um, but uh, with all your might. So the reminder to the people of Israel is love is the foundational premise. You understand God first loved you enough to build a... Otherwise, you'd be dead in slavery right now. But he pulled you out and saved you and made this covenant with you. And so, you likewise are supposed to hear. You're supposed to listen. That little saying, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is called the... You remember? Shema. Because the Hebrew word Shema means hear. But it's not just hear like you would hear someone's voice. It's listen. Uh, you know the difference between hear and listen? My mom made sure I knew the difference between hear and listen. I said, Mom, I heard you. And she said, but you didn't listen. Uh, meaning you didn't obey. The implications of Shema or the, the Shema is that not only will you hear the words that I'm saying, but you will turn in obedience. How do we know that we love the Lord? How do we know that we have a love for the Lord? We obey Him. <laughs> that's, that's the... What does Jesus say? Uh, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? So, right, this is the underlying premise of how we establish or how we uh, move in this covenant with the Lord is that we have to have a love for God. And so that's spelled out for us in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, just laying the foundations for this treaty that he's building between him and his people, this covenant that he's laying out with his people. But then we get into the second portion, which is the largest portion of the text. We're going to spend probably the least amount of time on it, but it's the largest portion of the text. Chapters 12 to 26 lays out a recapping of the law that he's already given to us in Leviticus. But what you will see if you go through the book of Deuteronomy, you can even do this by looking at the headings, by the way. Go through the book of Deuteronomy, and what you will see is it follows really closely with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are given to us again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. He just reminds us of what they are. And then chapters 12 to 26 is expanding on each of those commandments. What does it mean to just keep the Sabbath holy? Well, it's not just keeping the Sabbath holy, 
But there's also a bunch of holidays and festivals that you will adhere to, you will obey, you will continue in uh, as you live amongst your people. This is part of keeping the Sabbath holy. What does it mean to love the Lord your, or to worship me above all else, not create graven images? What does that mean? Well, it's not just those things. It's also you're going to have to destroy anybody that tries to build an idol. You're going to have that's the death penalty. Uh, for anybody that would bring out, because the first two commandments are the most vital and important. Um, so it, if you go through the book of Deuteronomy in 12 to 26, you'll see that it's really an expansion of the Ten Commandments. He's spelling out what all of those things mean. Now, not every aspect of their life was governed by a law, but because as you go through it, you will see that the laws are so broad, and there's so many of them, that there was ab- they were supposed to communicate a message to the children of Israel that there's no part of your life that is not governed by God. That He has sovereign control over every aspect of your life, including how you relate to your wife, how you relate to slaves, how you relate to sojourners in the land, how you relate to food, how you relate to everything else in the culture. How you trim your beard matters. Because every aspect of your life, there's no uh, part of this world that God cannot say, mine. I don't remember who said that. Bob, do you remember who said that? It's a great quote from somebody, but I wish I could give him credit. I, I made it up. I'll just say I, I said it. Uh, yeah, it may have been J.K. Chesterton, but someone famously said, uh, there's, there's no unimportant part of your life. Everything is governed by God himself. And so we see that throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And you'll, I mean, you read through 12 to 26. There's a lot of things in there that you can kind of, eh, this is not all that interesting. <laughs> There's some part, I mean, we get more in Deuteronomy, we get actually additions to Leviticus. We, there's some laws in Deuteronomy that come about that, that we simply don't have in Leviticus. This may have been because God had told them that later on, or it may be because it was part of the customs that they had started to establish over 40 years as they lived together. But the point is that they're, they're, Moses is trying to give them everything that they should go into the land and obey. Make sense? Questions on that? All right. So we get to the last um, little portion And the final section contains warnings about the curses that are going to follow if the covenant is not adhered to uh, strictly. And this is going to be, uh, is going to end up being really, really important. Um, We can read some of these curses. Deuteronomy uh, 27, 26. Somebody read that out loud. So that's what a curse sounds like. Look at Deuteronomy 30, 15. Moses is pleading with the people. Please listen to me. 30, 15 to 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, And by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So you can see, Moses is pleading with the people. 
Listen to what I'm saying. Do this and you will live. But, as it turns out, Moses is a prophet and he knows they're not going to do it. And this is the really this is the part I think at the end of Deuteronomy it sort de, the end of Deuteronomy becomes kind of a bummer. Cuz you 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 see the the law laid out for them and you're thinking if you haven't read the rest of the Bible you might be thinking okay well it seems pretty clear everything's sort of laid out there for them they should be able to do this. But as we know they can't. Let's be honest. If we're given the same law we couldn't. There's absolutely no way we could keep it perfectly. We know that. You and I know that. In fact, when Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, everybody there in the congregation is probably thinking, all right, I'm a pretty good law keeper. I don't murder. But do you get angry? Well, yeah. Oh, it's murdering your brother. That's what God's talking about. Okay? Well, I don't cheat on my wife. But do you lust? Well, yeah. That's adultery. By the time he gets through the end of the Sermon on the Mount, all of us feel like dirtbags. <laughs> and, and we're supposed to. That's why the Sermon on the Mount begins with Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's supposed to draw us back to repentance and mourning over our sin. Right? That's, that's what it's there for. And so we know, as Moses gives them this law, well, it's... But it's just, it's not, it's not going to work. And uh, we see here in, uh, let me see if I've got the, if I've got the verse down. Yep. Yeah. Um, Deuteronomy 31, 25 to 29. Um, let me see here on the, the list. I think it's a, yep. Moses knows that the people are going to rebel. They're going to be rebels against God. Look at Deuteronomy 31, 25 to 29. Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, this is the good generation, by the way. All right, this is the generation that survives and is given the land. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, You have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. Tons of witnesses coming in at the end of this covenant. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Is that true? Did they do that? Did they stay in the land? In fact, they don't even get into the land fully. They never do. Judges, the book of Judges, so you have Joshua coming up next where the conquest of the land comes. The book of Judges opens with, well, this is back in the day when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And the whole first chapter and really part of the second chapter is all built on all the people that they didn't kick out that they were supposed to. They lived with them and they thought, you know, what's the use in wasting all these people that we're kicking out? Why don't we make them our slaves? Why don't they just live amongst us and do our cleaning of our house and planting of our vineyards and and all of those things that we would otherwise have to do? Sound like a good idea. The problem was what Moses was telling them in Deuteronomy, if you do that, you're going to adopt their gods. It's not going to be long before you're violating commandment one and two, potentially the most important of the commandments. You're violating. Why? Because... They're worshiping other gods. We might as well include them into our pantheon as well and start worshiping them too. Just to cover our bases, make sure we're okay. Well, the very reason you're in the land is because the Lord gave it to you. You violate worship of the Lord and you're gone. And so they obviously don't see this as the most important thing. They see the land that's in front of them as the most important thing. This is the best thing. They're worshiping the gift rather than the giver. 
And so they don't obey him. And so what do they do? They end up uh, doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. He ends up kicking them out of the land because the law that's sitting in front of them is honestly too much for them. But this is why the structure of the book of Deuteronomy is really important. And it's really important for a New Testament age because what happens in Jesus Christ, look at what Paul says. Um, you Don't copy that down yet. Let's look at Deuteronomy 21, 23. His body shall not... This is, this is a, a curse that's pronounced on, uh, under violation of a, a particular law in Deuteronomy 20, 20, 21, 23. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. What does Paul then say in Galatians 3.13? He, he, write, he, he quotes this passage in Deuteronomy, and he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Now, what is remarkable about the way Deuteronomy informs us about the gospel is that God, the suzerain, knows that there is no vassal that can live up to the stipulations of his treaty. We're fallen. We're sinners. There's no way we can perfectly adhere to the righteous standard that he lays out in the treaty. The only way that the treaty can be fulfilled is for what? The suzerain to become the vassal. And that's what we see happen in Christ. The suzerain actually becomes the vassal. And what, he, what does he do? He tells us in Matthew 5, 17... I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The suzerain has to become the vassal. He has to fulfill the treaty on behalf of all the other vassals. But once the treaty is fulfilled, then what happens? Well, he becomes a curse. He becomes a curse under the treaty. Why? He's not supposed to. He fulfilled the stipulations of the treaty. Why is he cursed? We're the ones that are supposed to be cursed. Well, as it turns out, he's cursed for us. So what happens then? Who gets the reward of the fulfilling of the treaty? Who gets the accomplished treaty? Christ gives us that by faith. By trusting in him, he gives us the accomplished treaty. The fulfillment of the treaty is given to us while he remains dead. But as proof the payment was secured, God then raises him from the dead, ensuring that the accomplished treaty equals what? Life, not death. What is the promise to us in the New Testament? Not that you'll die but that you'll live. He tells us you won't even taste death. By that, I think what he means is eternal death, obviously. We'll pass away, but we'll live eternally. You won't taste death. In other words, you won't taste the curse of the law. Why? Because Christ fulfilled it on your behalf and he gives you the rewards of the fulfilled treaty by faith, by trusting in him. So the book of Deuteronomy is actually playing out in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. Do you see that? Questions? Comments? Concerns? Fears? Hopes and dreams? Unfulfilled expectations? I'll even take pet peeves at this point. No. Susa. I don't know Susa. Susa? Where does that come from? What, what, give me a reference. Give me something. A person? Like a person? Oh, oh no, no, no. Um, no, a, a suzerain is just a uh, king. <laughs> a powerful person. I'm not sure the origin of the language, though. Anything else? Any other questions? 
Thoughts? Nothing? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, just, just to, you know, just, I don't know, it just makes me think how, how awesome God really yeah, is yeah. with all of this down. What was, I can't remember what we used to, you know, meditate on before going to board and family and study there. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I think, you know, I, I guess a lot of, there's actually a lot of people, I think, in our world, especially people that, well, I think there are people that are, that are um, even Christians, that are actually disillusioned with, um, with the text of Scripture itself. You, you have uh, the generation before me, I think, was really uh, Ill- Bible illiterate. I would put my, my dad's generation in that category uh, of just kind of Bible illiterate that didn't really know how to teach their family uh, the truths of the Scripture. And I grew up under that, not really knowing uh, the truths of the Scripture. And my generation came out not illiterate, but apathetic, that even if they could read the words of Scripture, they don't think it has any value. But I don't think it does us any good to just take cursory readings of the scriptures and just these kind of sugary feel-good sermons and thing, things like that. I don't think that that actually does us any good, and I don't think it does a service to the people that are actually in our congregations. I think it's better if we take a deeper dive into the text of scripture and look at it uh, even with a microscope. Because what happens when you do that is the people that are apathetic toward the Bible lose their argument. You see that? They lose their argument. They think it actually says nothing to me today. There's no, it has no importance today. You see that all over our culture right now is a, an entire world of people who don't think the Bible says anything to them today. But when you dive deep and you actually put it under the microscope and you look at what's actually happening in the pages of Scripture that God communicated 1,500 years before Jesus and it's been around 3,000 years nearly today or more today, and you see that it actually holds up. And all of these loose ends that are opened in Deuteronomy are closed in Revelation and in the Gospels, and the, and the New Testament authors were picking up on all of this, and those, those little things that they said in there that you thought were just throwaway lines or mistakes or clearly that wasn't on purpose actually had a great intention behind all of those things actually mattered because look at what's happening in Deuteronomy. Things they understand that we don't. So it is very helpful, I think, to go through and, and look at that um, that way. Uh, an entire generation loses its argument and all kinds of academic research goes down the toilet. Yeah. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word and... Um, I'm grateful that we can come together if nothing, for nothing else than to celebrate that this is still valuable for our lives, that it still has something to say to us. And how arrogant of us to assume that um, we know better or that we've gone beyond the words of Scripture somehow. Uh, I hope that with anything that we've talked about tonight or any other night, um, that you just continue to remind us as your people that your word is your literal words, that that is you speaking to us, speaking about the world we live in, testifying about Christ and drawing us closer to him through it, through your word. So I pray that we would revere it, we would honor it, not by putting it on a special shelf in our house, but by reading it and hiding it in our hearts. I pray that you would do that for us. May we be a people that are creatures of the word um, through and through. In Jesus' name, amen.